Here's the topic of my sermon today. All you need is Jesus, right? Now, anyone who's been at the project long enough knows that they probably just want to be a little bit slow with answering that question, right? Especially if it's got a question mark and an exclamation point because there's probably a trick in it. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And there is a trick in it. All you need is Jesus. All right, here's what I want you to do if you're up for it. Raise your hand if you've ever prayed this prayer. God, if you'll just get me out of this, then... Who's ever, who's ever prayed that prayer? Okay, quite a few. So anyone, I actually was thinking today, it would be really interesting if there were a couple of you that actually wanted to come out and tell us about this, this scenario or the context in which you prayed that prayer. Is anyone up for that? It's probably a bit embarrassing, maybe. No? No takers. It's an interesting prayer, isn't it? I mean, I could ask you the question, um, if you actually did that, right? Because the classic thing about that prayer is, God, if you just get me out of this, then I'll serve you for the rest of my life. That tends to be the prayer. I'll do this for you. And it's, it's almost, there's a bit of a bargaining power kind of a deal going on there. It's, it's like, if you do something for me, I'll do something for you. Now, do you actually, I'll just ask you at this point, think about this. Do you actually think that that's going to be a healthy thing for the rest of your life? That you're driven by God did something for you, so you have to serve him for the rest of your life. You know, it's almost got that feel about it, doesn't it? Of the movies that you watch where someone um, gives their life or maybe they don't give their life, but they save someone's life, and then the person whose life has been saved is now kind of stuck serving them for the rest of their days. Have you seen a movie like that? And they kind of stay with them, and they, they, um, they protect them, and until they save that person's life, they're not actually free. I wonder in your mind whether you think Jesus actually wants a relationship like that with someone. Do you think he wants a relationship where, if you just do this for me, then I'll follow you for the rest of my life? Do you think he'd be really happy with that? Well, this morning, I think Mark is actually teaching us three main things today. First thing Mark teaches us is this, you need Jesus. The second thing Mark teaches us here in Mark chapter 1 is that meeting your needs is not your greatest need. And the third thing I think Mark teaches us is that uh, he teaches us how Jesus engages with people who see him as a need meter. First one, you need Jesus. Does that fish need water? Can it live without water? Not long term. It might for a little while, won't it? It'd be on the bench flapping around. All right? And if you've ever been fishing and you caught fish and you take them out of water, they kind of breathe for a while, but they don't last for very long and their life's not a very fruitful life. Well, you know what? God made you, Jesus made you, to be intimately and directly connected to him. That's how you've been made. Like a fish has been made for water, you've been made for Jesus. Now, can someone live without Jesus? Yeah, they can. They can for a little while. But they're going to be flapping around. Do you get what I'm saying? It's going to be a weird kind of living. Like if you looked at a goldfish sitting on a bench top flapping around, you wouldn't think that that goldfish is having life abundant, would you? How does a goldfish have life abundant? In the water. Get them in the water. That's what they're actually made for. Here's the thing. 
If you're not a Christian here today and you're not connected to Jesus, you can still live, but you're not going to have abundant life because you're not connected to the thing that actually brings abundant life, the thing that you are made for. Acts 17 verse 28 says this, In him we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 says, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Listen to this. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's you. And here's the interesting thing. You cannot be a Christian and not be following Jesus and still be relying upon him. Because if his creative word right now decides that things don't exist anymore, you don't exist. You disintegrate. That's what Colossians is saying. Everything holds together because of Jesus. And you do. You see, you were originally created to fit him, need him, and partner with him. And we got the saying, don't we, that people say to each other, they say, you're like a fish out of water. And that's really saying, man, you don't belong there. And the truth is, in Australia, if the, uh, the rate of... Uh, or well, the percentage of people that the census says are, uh, are Christians, maybe around about 4%, is true. There's 96% of Australia that are flapping on the bench top like a fish out of water. Now, here's the thing. You might think, I think I can do it. I think I can make it work. But you know what? If you were made for Jesus, it wouldn't take a very long conversation to actually sit down with someone and find some areas where you're flapping around like a fish on a bench top with me you can find it now the thing is christians people who follow jesus who belong to jesus we have moments don't we where we just go well i'm not going to follow you and i'm not going to depend upon you i'll look after this one and at that point we're a fish flapping on the bench top does it make sense and you can find that and some of you talk to each other and you have conversations with each other and you hear things that sound like that you just well hang on you're not depending upon jesus there you're depending upon yourself or on your bank account or you're depending upon coffee or you're depending upon chocolate or shopping or clothes and you're flapping around all right and you're just going yeah all of those things are good except you're not actually going to the thing that you were made for and what we actually see in mark is that in mark chapter one is people coming out to jesus with an extraordinarily large number of needs. And it just turns out that Jesus is the exact kind of person that they need to connect with. Check these scriptures out. The first one there. They were astonished at his, at his teaching. Who here knows that it's really confusing in the world sometimes, all these experts, and they say contradictory things, and you don't know what to do. Has anyone ever noticed that? Do you think that human beings need an authoritative teacher who can actually say what's right and wrong and what's good and what's bad? Do you think we need that? Yeah, yeah I think we do. That's the first one there. The second one there, do you think that we actually need someone who actually has authority and power and control over the spiritual realm, over angels and demons and everything else that kind of messes with our world? Do we need someone like that? Yeah, we do. And that's what Jesus does. And then you get down to the third one there, Mark 1.31, where Jesus goes to Capernaum, to Peter's house, and in case you're wondering, I can give you the uh, archaeological evidence of it. They think they've found Peter's house in Capernaum on the shores of the Galilee. 
And this is not some kind of random Christian website, someone who's got 250 bucks and can write whatever they want about it. This is a peer-reviewed archaeology magazine saying we think we've found Peter's house. It's a real thing. Mark's talking about real stuff. But he goes, Jesus goes to Peter's house, and who's there but Peter's mother-in-law, and she's sick. Jesus comes in and touches her. She gets better. Do you think that our world needs someone who can touch people and bring physical healing to them? Yeah. And you know what? One day he's going to bring complete physical healing to everyone that loves him. Complete. So you're not going to have that dicky knee anymore. All right? Well, the nose, it won't stop running in springtime because of hay fever. He's going to fix it all. And then you go down to the next one, Mark 1, 33 to 34. Do you think that we actually need someone who can bring healing externally to the masses, who actually cares about the masses? Do we? Our world needs someone who can bring healing and care about the masses. But we also need someone, don't we, that actually cares about the internals. And the last one down the bottom there is Jesus bringing healing to the leper. And you've got to realise that lepers were outcasts. I mean, in our day, he'd be on some kind of Medicare health plan for psychology services, that leper, right? And we'll get to more of that later on. But they were the outcasts. He would have problems with his identity, his psychology, his biology, And what does Jesus do? He actually comes in and he deals with a whole bunch of that stuff. And some of you might sit there and you go, oh, that's really great. It would be even better if it was true. Well, you know what's really interesting is you can actually find data in non-Christian documents of the day that reinforce this whole notion that Jesus was some kind of wonderful miracle worker. Check this one out. This is from Josephus. He lived from 37 to 100 AD. He was a Jewish historian. Wasn't on the same team as the Christians. Listen to what he said. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. That's kind of code for miraculous things. A teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross... Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. You've got data outside of the Gospels and Christian literature that's saying there's this guy in Galilee and he's getting around and he's doing some pretty amazing things. And that makes it good news, doesn't it? Does that make it good news? Because he's not done with doing amazing things in our day. And what we actually find is Jesus starts getting this amazing reputation around the place. You've got in Mark 1.22, people going, man, we're just astonished with this guy's teaching. And then in 1.27, they're amazed. And then in Mark 1.28, his fame kind of spreads everywhere. You can imagine the Chinese, well, it's not really Chinese whispers, but the word of mouth. People going and talking to their neighbours, they're down at the shops and they're saying, man, can you, unbelievable, this guy called, have you heard, no, I haven't heard about him, where is he? And, and his fame is building in terms of his ability to meet people's needs. And then you get this section in Mark 1, verse 32 to 34, that looks like a little bit of a climax in uh, his fame. It says, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And, they would not, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You know, it's really interesting is what Jesus does next. Because he is a miracle worker, isn't he? He is powerful. 
But what he does next is a little bit confusing. Read this scripture through with me. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Listen to this. And rising very early in the morning. Now, the Greek word kind of behind this phrase, or the words behind this phrase actually say it was way before sunup. He got up really early. Now, it doesn't, we don't know when, but I'd be thinking two, three o'clock, way before. It's not even getting close. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He gets away from it all. And what happens? And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him. Now, the Greek words behind this phrase, searching and finding, you know what it actually typically is translated as? They hunted for him in a hostile way. Do you see what's going on here? The boys are in Capernaum, and ever, Jesus is famous. And everyone wants to get fixed up by him. And they're going, what the heck is going on? What is he doing? Why is he leaving at the most critical moment? He's just reached the point of, of really being useful. They found him and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. So like there's people that need stuff from you. And what does he do? Well, he says this. He says... And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. You get that? If you're the disciples, you're just going, what? We've got demons here. We've got sick people that need to be healed. It's kind of like, and I'm not saying that it was necessarily the day before, but it kind of sounds a bit like it. It's kind of like, you did that yesterday. Why not come back and just do it again? And he kind of goes, no, I want to preach. So all of you need to learn how to preach, obviously, because that's what it means to be godly. <laughs> Do you know what the problem was here? I think the problem is that Jesus just became someone to meet their needs. That's all he was. And I think Jesus knows it. And he's not going to play that game. He's not going to play the game of being the need Meter. See, they're actually probably, as far as we can tell, only interested in what he can do to heal their physical afflictions. And if we're to be really harsh about it, you'd probably even almost say that they wanted to use him to get their lives fixed up. And it, makes, it made me, as I was preparing for this, I was, I was thinking about this, because it has major ramifications for Jesus' ministry. Because you notice here at the end of Mark 1, verse 45, the, the uh, leper at the end kind of blows it out again. He doesn't do what Jesus tells him to do. And he's obviously gone and told everyone that Jesus can fix you up. And then in Mark 1, 45, it says Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But he stayed in the wilderness. And what's the problem? The problem is that you've got a lot of people who won't deal with him on a personal level, but they want to deal with him on the level of you come and fix my stuff up. And it made me think, I was just thinking this week, I just thought, why is it? What is it about healings and exorcisms? And I've never been directly involved with an exorcism. But what is it about healings and exorcisms that distract people? And I've seen it happen a lot in churches where God comes and he starts to do some really amazing stuff. And, 
and people get all excited about it, which is really good. And then they pray for more of that stuff to happen. And then it kind of whips up a fervor. And then about three weeks later, they're kind of going, what happened to Jesus? Where's he gone? And he got up in the middle of the night and he left. And he's just kind of not there like he used to be. And part of the problem is, is because people got obsessed with the miraculous and, and the meeting of the needs. And, and maybe, I don't want to go too far into this, but maybe they got obsessed with their life being perfect in this life. Maybe they got obsessed with power or control. Finally, someone's come in that's going to give me power and control over the things that bother me, that I struggle with. Someone, finally, God's fitting in with me and he's interested in, in my happiness now. And he's going to make my life work the way that I think my life should work. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Now, I don't, I don't want to pee poo it. Because you know what? I think it would be great if Jesus wanted to heal a whole bunch of people through the project, physically. And I, think, I actually think it would be really cool if uh, people got released from some kind of demonic oppression through through the project and through, through Jesus. But do you know what? There's a massive danger in that, isn't there? That we could actually miss Jesus. So let me ask you this question. As a trick, it's always a trick. Is Jesus a need meter? So you're feeling the bind, right? So the answer to that is yes and no, isn't it? There's a, there's a lot of questions in the world where the answer is yes and no. Just a bit of a tip. Listen to this out of Psalm 103. Beautiful scripture. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his what? His benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Do you need a miracle from Jesus? Do you? What would you say? How would you answer that? Do you need Jesus? Well, let me ask you this question. You don't have to answer this one out loud, but if you think you need Jesus, why do you need Jesus? You see, the really interesting thing about people who come to faith and decide to start following Jesus is it is need that people get started on. But you know what? If you actually try to live your life in following Jesus on fulfilment of need, you're going you're gonna to tank out. Let me give you an illustration. What if... Um, I continually said to my wife, I hate being lonely and I'm so glad that I'm married to you so that I'm not lonely. What if I actually said to my wife, you know the thing that I love most about being married is that I'm not lonely. What would you say to me? (laughs) That's right, move the couch out to the shed. There's a problem, right? Now... Does, is there a sense in which spouses in marriage fulfill each other's needs? Yeah, there is, right? But you know that you can't actually run a relationship on the fulfillment of needs. Does that make sense? Someone uh, who will remain nameless actually gave my wife and I a book um, when we were engaged called His Needs, Her Needs. And it's all about that. 
And the interesting thing with God is God, like if you look at Psalm 103 there, is he going to meet a whole bunch of your knees? Absolutely. Does he have an issue with that? Not at all. But if you actually go to God and you say, oh, I love being forgiven so much. Thanks so much for that, that I'm forgiven. And you miss God and you miss Jesus in the middle of it. He's not very comfortable with that. Because you can't run a relationship on that. You cannot run a relationship with God on the way that he helps you and how he meets your needs primarily. Now, am I saying that he doesn't meet your needs? No, I'm not. Someone's going to go out of here today and say, Peter thinks God's meeting needs is a bad thing. He thinks it's a great thing. All right, hear me. I think it's great. But if that's what you really love, you're using God to get what you really love. And I think the people in Mark are actually doing that. Eugene Peterson's got this really amazing section where he talks about the limitation of needs. And uh, just read through this with me. He says this, he said, We are created to be open, to be open to God, to open out towards our neighbours. We can only be whole and healthy insofar as we do this. When we're in need, when first-hand experience documents our inability to be whole, beings on our own, the first thing that can happen is that we will become more authentically human. I love this sentence. Need rips gashes in our self-containment and opens us, to, us up to our neighbour. Need blows holes in our roofed-in self-sufficiency and opens us to God, but not necessarily. For the self-willed self does not give up easily. It makes a persistent and determined stand to use these need-generated openings, not to move out, but to pull whoever is trying to help it into its service. Put the neighbours to its use. If unwary, the person providing care is co-opted into feeding selfishness, which is to say sin. You see the limitation there? I mean, it is true. It is true that people come to faith because of need. But it's not always the case that people who come to faith, or people who have needs come to faith, probably is a better way to put it. I would say that I became a Christian because I wanted... I I remember telling a lady about... um, how good a father God was and I came to the realisation I didn't have him and I had this sense inside of me I just go I want God's oversight and his care for me like I was telling the lady she could have now that's that's a genuine need and I think God's okay with that I think I'm not saying that's a bad thing but it has to move on past that if that makes sense it's it's not going to be less than that but it needs to move to something far greater than that because real relationship cannot survive on need Fulfillment. I was trying to explain this to um, one of my boys last night. That's a pretty difficult thing to explain. He got pretty close to it. Um, but it was an interesting conversation about it, um, about whether you love someone for what they do for you or whether you love someone for the person that they are. Ed Welsh uh, makes these interesting comments on needs also. He says, The good news for spiritual needs is that our sins are forgiven. We are adopted as children of God through faith and we are given eternal life. The good news for psychological needs is that Christ fills us with identity, significance, personal respect and self-worth. He makes us feel good about ourselves, but is that really the gospel? Doesn't the gospel, in a very real sense, obliterate our preoccupation with ourselves, equipping us to be preoccupied with loving God and others? So you can see Ed's actually connecting in to that there. John Piper has a really good question that he asks in his book, uh, God is the Gospel. And uh, this is a good opportunity for you to check yourself. See how you go with answering this question. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth 
and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, listen to this, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Good question. Probably goes on to say this. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savouring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Now, this is subtle. Because you know what happens sometimes is the truth is probably for a lot of us that we're actually disappointed with God. And part of the reason why we're disappointed with him is that he doesn't fit in with our plan. He doesn't do what we want him to do. And sometimes, you know you have some times in your life where God does some really miraculous thing and you have a, a, a little season where you really see God at work and you just kind of think, oh, finally God gets it. You know? <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? Have you ever thought that? You see, finally he gets it. This is what I've been trying to tell him for the last 10 years. And then everything goes well for a little while and then he ducks off and he does something else. And it's kind of like he's ducked off into the wilderness. And you just go, well, hang on. No, no, it was all going really well when you were giving me everything I thought I should have. But isn't it true that we get obsessive about what we need easily? We get obsessive about it and we get more obsessive about it than Jesus. And our own sense of self-worship turns Jesus into our servant. And he becomes worthwhile, worthwhile for what he can do, not for who he is. So what does Jesus do for those who think he's a need meter? We've covered a fair bit of it. One thing he does is he disappears. And maybe, I'll just... Be straight with you. Maybe for some of you, you kind of go, I just don't sense God in my life. You know, the one reason why you don't sense God in your life and he's not in your life could be that you want him to be a need meter in your life and he's not doing what you want and you're not willing to shift from your program. And he's, he got up before sunlight and he's left. Now, has he left your life completely? No, he hasn't because he always promises to be with you. But in terms of the dynamic work that he's up to, he's, he's gone. He's, he's off in the wilderness somewhere, a long way away. You see, what you've actually got here, I mean, just think about it. The, the sick and the, the demon-possessed people were being brought after sundown on the Sabbath. So you, you, don't, you don't have um, the critical life-threatening situations going on. You know what you got? You got the chronic stuff. Because they knew that you weren't supposed to do it on the Sabbath, so they waited until after sundown. It's like the chronic stuff, you know. And who knows that sometimes in life you just have stuff that's just chronic. 
in your life. And it's just like, it's long term. And it's wearing, you know. I mean, life can be like a real pestle and mortar sometimes and you're kind of in between them. And you can sense the need of people to just go, we've got these chronic things we need you to fix. What's Jesus going to do? Well, you know what's really interesting about Jesus is he knows people are using him and he does it anyway. Not all the time, but he still does it. That, that's amazing. And that's actually hope-filled for you because you know what? I bet you you use him to get what you want because I know I do and I think it's a human thing. We use him to get what we want. And you know what? He lets himself be used to be generous and gracious and compassionate to you. Case study, the leper. So the leper comes to Jesus. He wants to be healed. Here's the laws about lepers. Leviticus 13, 45 to 46. A leprous person who has a skin disease, it's, uh, they think there's probably six or seven different skin diseases that would, would have counted as leprosy, shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He's unclean, he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. There were some really strict rules for lepers. I found some new rules from the rabbis about leprosy. Listen to these. I reckon these are classics. But imagine being a leper. Lepers were not allowed in houses because it made them and the contents unclean. So you wouldn't have a leper over to your house unless you were prepared to go through the cleansing kind of stuff. What about this one? If someone afflicted with leprosy stood under a tree and a clean man passed by, the latter becomes unclean. This was a rabbinical rule. If a clean man stood under the tree and an unclean one passed by, the former remains clean, but if the latter stood still, so you've got a clean guy under a tree and a leper walks past, there's no dramas, the clean guy stays clean. But you know what happens if the leper stops and stands still for a little bit? Clean guy gets unclean. You could go to church, you could go to the synagogue if you're a leper, but you know what? There had to be a screen up isolating you from everyone else. Rabbis thought that cleansing someone of leprosy was as difficult as raising a dead person. And you know what? We live in a world, don't we, where people catch bad things from each other. Because that's the way it works. The way it works with a leper is if you're a leper, you catch something bad from a leper, you, you get uncleanness from them. Your cleanness doesn't make them clean. Their uncleanness makes you unclean. In the same way that an apple, a rotten apple, transfers its rottenness to the other apples, the cleanness of the apples on the screen there doesn't make the rotten apple clean. It doesn't work that way. And that's pretty much the way that our whole world works, is that uncleanness makes other things unclean. I mean, you can even get, I think it's the second law of uh, thermodynamics, the law of entropy, which is about how energy is passed on, but it's all... The whole of the universe is moving from a state of order and energy to a state of disorder and energy dissipation. That's just kind of how it works. Now, the really interesting thing is that he comes up to Jesus and there's a, everyone holds their breath probably because not only, Jesus is not standing under a tree. They're standing together and it's, we're going to find out is Jesus actually going to touch this guy? What's going to happen when cleanness touches uncleanness? Is the uncleanness going to be caught 
which it happens in our world just about all the time, or is cleanness going to win the day? And we know the answer to the story. Jesus' cleanness makes the leper clean. And there's a wonderful section in uh, The Law and the Witch in the Wardrobe, which I won't show you, but there's a wonderful section toward the end of it where Aslan has come back to life from being killed at the stone table. And there's all these animals throughout all the time that the, the witch had been ruling that she'd turned into stone and they're all in her palace. And they're all made out of stone. And what happens is uh, Susan and Lucy go with Aslan to the palace and Aslan goes around and he breathes on each of these statues. And when he breathes on them, life happens. They come alive. In fact, the whole of Narnia is coming alive because Narnia has just been in a frozen time warp for however many years because of the witch. And it's melting. You get to the, the castle, the witch's castle, and, and the statues are dripping but there's still not life there. Even if they thaw out, there's still not life there. But when Aslan, who's the representative of Jesus, actually breathes on them, life happens. And you know what's super interesting about Jesus' miracle here for the leper? Is there's a section in there. Have a look in the middle there. It's about halfway through. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. Do you know the Greek words behind that phrase? You know what they uh, are most similar to? They're most similar to the way that Jesus casts out demons. You know why? Because Jesus knew that the leper was going to disobey him. Jesus told him, I don't want you to tell anyone about this. And he knew that the man was going to disobey him. Pause for a minute and just think about that. What does that say to you about the compassion of Jesus? He's got someone in his very midst that he's actually quite angry at. I mean, it says there that he's, he sternly charged him. It's really saying Jesus was angry with him. And somehow, Jesus' anger and his compassion sit in the same place. Whilst he's angry with the man for his, his, his future disobedience, he's compassionate toward the man and he heals him. This is a great hope for you. This is a great hope for you. Because you actually need a God who brings healing to people who are disobedient. 1 Peter 3 it says this, it says, Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to... Does anyone know that verse? To bring us to who? It says to bring us to God. So your greatest need is not to get all your stuff fixed up. Your greatest need is to actually be back in relationship with, with God and with Jesus. That's your greatest need. And you have a Messiah who doesn't want to just be a trick worker in your life. You have a Messiah who wants to relate to you. And do you see what he's doing here is he's going, I want you people not to just think of me as a trick worker, but I want you to think of me as someone that you have to deal with on a relational, personal level. He goes, I'm going to tell you who I am. Don't let them tell you about who I am. Don't let the demons tell you who I am. Don't let anyone else tell you who I am. I'll tell you who I am and you respond to me. You have a personal response to me. 
I want to play you a, um, a clip. Can you just go to the, uh, the slide after the uh, as, uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe one, please, Div? I'll play it in a minute, mate. I uh, had my day off on Wednesday, and I was at home, and I was having lunch, and I thought I'll just watch the ABC News on ABC 24. And it was a, it, it, there was this very tragic story uh, on there about the Ebola uh, epidemic. So I, I just wanted to show you. And then we're going to have communion. Um, so this is it. The following report contains some disturbing images. An empty road, empty houses. We're driving into the new stronghold of the virus and to one village at its heart. In Kigbal, a cluster of children on one side of the road. We soon discover why. On the other side, everyone is either dead or dying. She said she's sick. She has the sickness of a turnover. Her head is turning, so she's got a fever, presumably. That's what she yes. said. Do you think it's Ebola? It is. We're having to be very careful where we walk. There were dead bodies all around here that were cleared up just recently, but still in the middle of this village we have Ebola victims and there are three, two or three here, these women and their baby daughter and another man just down the road and they're all believed to have the virus. They're just being left here, presumably to die. Next door, Momo Sese is struggling with no protective gear to care for his sick wife, Fatu. The husband, the husband is asking the wife that um, if they don't heal you, what will happen to you? And the lady said she's going to die. I'm sorry there's nothing we can do to help you. But I'm sure help will come. He pleads again for help as Fatu drifts away. Across the road, the children wait. They think this side is safer. But some of them look feverish. So where are their parents? Could you ask the children to raise their hands if they've been orphaned? Because I've been calling, 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 attending meetings of um, um, WFP and WHO, and um, I haven't got any help yet. Nothing at all? Nothing at all. I feel very angry about that, because my people are dying. Mabinti is 14. I'm not feel fun, because now they're near me. When my father became ill, they took him away, she says. I don't even know if he's dead now. So many have gone. We came to this side to avoid catching the virus. But there is no proper quarantine system here. Local officials have taken a handful of the more feverish children a mile up the road. Alison is six. Are you feeling okay? His head's aching, I'm sorry. And so he returns to the others, 
if some of them don't have Ebola yet, they're now living beside people who definitely do. Andrew Harding, BBC News, Sierra Leone. It's tragic. And that's probably a modern diversion to some small extent. I hesitate to use it as an example, but it's... It, you get the feeling like that with Ebola, don't you? It's like if you're going to go, if you touch them, it's going to kill you. So what do you do? You know, and the thing, the thing that makes me wonder is, I just think, how many people have contracted it over there because a loved one's got it, and they just can't bear standing them, standing by and watching them die, and not touching them, and not hugging them. You know, and then I. I asked myself the question on Wednesday. The obvious question and the very difficult philosophical question is if God loves people and he's in control, what's he doing? Why is he not there? Because you know that if Jesus was there, you know he's going to go up and grab someone and he'll touch them and he'll look after them and they'll get healing through him. Because he doesn't catch stuff. It works the other way. He never, ever catches stuff. He never catches uncleanness from you. He never catches sicknesses from you. Whenever he touches something, good things happen. But he's not there in that shot. And I find that really difficult. Your biggest problem, every single person's biggest problem is not that we're going to physically die. And I hesitate to say this, but the people who are on that clip, who are in that clip, who are dying from Ebola, you know what? Their biggest problem is not that they're going to die physically. Their biggest problem is that they have an issue between them and God. And this is the only way that I can sort it out in my head, is that one day, on the cross, Jesus got Ebola. He got Ebola. Because the way that it works when you read the stuff about the leper is Jesus is going around and he's making things clean and he's healing things, but it's not affecting him. But there was a day, wasn't there, where he got Ebola. He got everyone's Ebola. He got everyone's sins, everyone's disobedience came upon him. And he died. He died the worst death possible. And it wasn't just because of the physical reality. He died the worst death possible because he had the Ebola of every single person's disobedience to God. And do you know what happened on that day? He died alone. Now, I can't answer. I don't know what God's doing in the middle of Africa at the moment. But I do know this. The fact that one man died on his own with the Ebola of the world, means that our biggest problem, every single person's biggest problem who's dying of Ebola, is resolved and it's dealt with. It's his aloneness. It's his death. It's his taking on of our disease that makes it possible that our greatest need of being brought back to the Father is met.